Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. So to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. We've got a lot of the weightlifting and powerlifting certifications coming up, so check out those events. And this podcast can also be found on our website, along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. My name is Quinn Hennick, and I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California, at Clinical Athlete Newport. I am joined by John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and the wellness director at Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in White Plains, Maryland. He is the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong, also in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He's also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of our newest course, the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. John, how you doing? I'm doing really well. It seemed longer than it normally is, but it's the same intro that I always do. I know. I think I've just gotten a little slower with it. Maybe. And you may have noticed that I didn't introduce Jared because he wasn't on the call until I started to introduce John. But we're also joined by Jared Maynard, who is a clinical athlete, continuing education director and coordinator, and a physiotherapist in Ontario, Canada. He's also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. Yeah, I felt that you were introducing John, and I needed to make sure that I arrived to make sure that he didn't have all the spotlight. Well, he went first this time. He did. Son of a gun. I even switched up. Yeah, yeah, man. It feels weird. Feels bad. Yeah. We are also super excited to welcome onto the show Andrew Patton, who is a strength and conditioning coach and a PhD candidate at Johns Johns Hopkins. Andrew, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Andrew performed a year-long longitudinal study assessing factors contributing to injury risk in powerlifters, and this is why we wanted to get him on the show, and that's what we're going to talk about. But before we do that, Andrew... Can you let our six listeners know a little bit more about yourself and what's led to your current interest and all facets as a lifter, as a coach, as a researcher, all of that? Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, I was a college athlete and realized very quickly I liked lifting weights better than playing the sport. And I was much better at lifting weights than playing the sport. Um, so that was kind of my introductory, introductory strength conditioning, like a lot of people um, in college and Carried that, you know, through the next, you know, 10 years or so of uh, training conditioning work, whether on the NCAA or uh, MCLA or kind of professional recreational level. I've had the opportunity to work with everybody from Olympians to regular people and everything in between. Um, most recently, I was the strength and conditioning coach at Loyola, I'm wearing a shirt, at Loyola Maryland, um, with the lacrosse team for about a year and a half. Um, very recently, and... Uh, which is kind of concurrent with conducting the study as well. Um, in addition to all that, I've been kind of a lifelong uh, scientist. Um, I'm currently getting my PhD at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg in epidemiology and exposure science. Um, you know, I've always been interested in numbers and how the, the two intersect and making sure that, you know, training and lifting is done properly. Um, I've, and so I think that it was a natural, a natural confluence of being able to, you know, work with Greg and his large audience and conduct this 
essentially this an epidemiological study of, of recreational powerlifters, um, which to our knowledge is one of the larger ones out there, certainly. Um, and it's interesting because it's a international study. Um, and really the impetus for this was based off of something that Greg had on his website, um, Stronger by Science. About six months before we started the study, it was a, just a simple kind of, I think he sent out a questionnaire to, some, um, to his audience kind of about asking them about certain things. And I did a quick cross-sectional kind of review of the information for him. And we found out that there was a ridiculously high proportion of men who were injured compared to women. And we thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. And it pretty much just went from there. So the initial hypothesis, the, the, the motivating uh, statement, I guess, of the study from the beginning was initially to look at sex differences because that was the very single largest factor in the cross-sectional piece that we did. And uh, that was kind of the jumping off point. Yeah. So if for the listeners, if you want to read more about the study, Andrew and Greg are doing a multi-part series on Greg's blog, Starting by Science. And by the way, Greg is a past guest of the Clinical Athlete Podcast. But right now they have two parts of that series out on their website, on the Stronger by Science website. The first part is titled Injuries and Powerlifting Background and Overview. And it just kind of gives a rundown of, of what you guys did, the methods in the study, and a cursory look at the results. And then the second is titled Injuries and Powerlifting Basic Results, where little bit more detail about the results, but still just kind of an overview. And my understanding is that you guys are going to continue to dive deeper and, and kind of lay out more parts as, as we go, which is going to be super exciting. So you can Google the titles of those two pieces and Stronger by Science and you can, and you can read those. I want to jump off just in case the listeners are, are not familiar. You, you had the cross-sectional data from, from Greg's first piece and the, and the work that you did there. This most recent study was a longitudinal study. Can you, can you just take a step back and, and for the listeners who don't know, explain the differences in methodology between a cross-sectional data set and a longitudinal study and the limitations of, of cross-sectional data? Sure. So cross-sectional study is one of the simplest ways to look at um, kind of data over time in the sense that a cross-sectional, we're filming this on July 22nd, and so a cross-sectional study would be at this moment in time, July 22nd, are you injured? Yes or no? What's your best squat? How much do you weigh? Things like that. Just this exact moment in time, nothing forward, nothing backwards. It's a, literally a snapshot, a cross-section of, of information. Um, what's useful about that is it's very easy to analyze. It's very easy to collect that information. It's cheap. Um, the downside is that it, it's not a... The, it's on the kind of the beginning chain of, uh, of collecting evidence and, and, you know, from things like that. It's not a super robust way to do it, but it is a very good hypothesis, generating, gener hypothesis generation uh, type of study. And also, if that's all the information you have, that's kind of all you can do. Um, a longitudinal study is essentially following a group of people over time. And it's important to note that... Um, the study we did was not an intervention study. It was not a randomized control trial. We did not intervene or suggest or do anything with regards to modifying how people conducted their lives. It was a true observational longitudinal study. So we followed people over time. Every essentially the first, essentially the fifteenth of every month, thirtieth rather, everyone got a uh, got a survey asking about the prior thirty days. This conducted uh, that went on through the entire year. And if, unless somebody elected not to continue or uh, if the person was injured, their, um, 
their participation in the study ended there as well. So essentially it's 12 data points per person maximum over the course of a year. Okay. So they actually, they were, they were, they no longer received a survey after the, uh, an injury. So you, you weren't reporting multiple injuries in the same person. It was only, if you got injured once, that was it. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So in, in this is, you know, a, a single event type of study where, um, you know, these kind of studies have their basis in health outcomes and the very common single health outcome is death. And so a lot of the, um, you know, that's a rather, rather finite end there. So in many ways, that's how much a lot of methodology is built out. And also we wanted to make sure that people weren't getting hurt, rehabbing and hurting and rehabbing and hurting and things like that. Because obviously if you, you know, you tear your hamstring, you're not really going to be training properly for the next few months. You mentioned a little bit about the methodology. If can you give an overview of of how you guys put this study together, just kind of from from start to finish, like a the timeline of what a participant was doing? And you did that a little bit. So if there's any holes that you want to fill there, feel free to do so. And then the overview of of the results, just the, sure. the, kind of the bigger picture there. Yeah, certainly. So, and uh, we're lucky that one of our, your, your host was a participant, so I'm sure he can fill in some information as well if he thinks uh, I'm forgetting something. But um, it's important to note that all these qu- these 12 questionnaires, theoretically, were all standardized. So it's the same questions over and over again, because you want to collect the same data with as little uh, chance for error as possible. So we asked a wide range of questions, um, with the primary goal of the study being to injury, look at injury risks. And... Um, it's important to note what exactly we define an injury as, because that is ultimately what you're measuring. And if you don't measure the thing right, nothing you do is going to be correct. <laughs> so I can just read kind of our definition for injury here, which I think is is important. Um, we said that our injury is um, it was more of a broader side than than a lot of uh, literature in the past has been. Um, our exact definition was an acute injury defined as any bone fracture, muscle ligament, tendon tear, or joint sprain, dislocation, or separation, any injury that necessitates a trip to an MD or PT, not including chiropractor, massage therapist, any injury or any variety that necessitated taking time off from training for two weeks or greater. For example, a knee injury that required you to stop squatting for three weeks even though you never stop benching, would be considered an acute injury. Being sore and skipping one workout would not be considered an injury. So essentially, everything we asked is kind of framed around that definition. Uh, we would ask people if they had an acute injury in the prior 30 days, when it occurred. We asked for information regarding uh, sleep, diet, training variables, um, baseline strength levels, um, monthly strength levels, um, recovery strategies, pretty much to capture a wide, wide range of, of, you know, demographic and powerlifting specific information for each person. Just out of curiosity, just in case one of our six listeners is one, why the, why the exclusion of chiropractic and massage therapy? Um, so don't be afraid. Don't, don't be afraid. If if the answer is going to piss anybody off, don't worry. It's fine. We've, we piss off plenty of people on this show. Yeah, it's not meant. I I see both. So yeah. I mean, it's it's not a it's a those are not medical in many situations. Um, you know, if and then, you know that tends to make sure that 
we wanted to, because again, if you're involved in the strength sports seriously, sometimes things are going to feel a little sore and you may go get a massage. You're not hurt. Um, you know, people who often get routine adjustments or things like that, um, you probably don't have a routine appointment with an orthopedic surgeon. Got things it. like that. Okay. So it's just kind of trimming, because obviously, you know, people will go, can go see a chiropractor. They're, they can be first line defenders because uh, they can, they have physician rights in a lot of states. But to your point, the idea is that for those who are kind of doing those maintenance treatments, they're not hurt. It's just kind of their routine. It's like their training routine. You're just trying to trim that, the chance of that being included. Yeah. As an again, injury. Yeah. Correct. I think it's, and with this, this, you know, this essentially, this is our definition of our measurement. You want to be as, precise as possible so every person who reads the definition has the same understanding almost regardless of what it is totally within that so with that methodology what did you guys find on the surface level because i know you haven't really talked about all of of what you looked at yet but from what's analyzed up to this point what were some of the significant results Sure. So the giant, the, the largest red flag, absolutely by far, which will not shock any of you physical therapists, is essentially physical limitations at baseline. So the very first survey, so one of 12, included some baseline screening information, you know, information that isn't going to change really, your age, you know, your sex, things like that. So things that are time invariant, um, things like that, that will not change over time. We asked information about that. And we, while we excluded people who were essentially currently injured or currently rehabbing, you can't really, ex- there is a, you know, you can be not injured, but have the, you have to have some modification in your training. That is a limitation more so than an injury, if that makes sense. For yeah. me, I had knee surgery about two years ago. And so my limitation is, I don't high bar squat as much as I used to because that tends to bug my knee at high flexions, but I can still low bar squat as heavy as I want to, as often as I want to. I'm not injured. I just have to do a little tweaking. And so we wanted to make that, again, a distinction between can you do everything exactly the way you wanted to without any limitations, or is there some aspect of your training that has to be modified slightly? Is that how you worded it? I I think I maybe missed that part. Um. Yeah, I was just curious. Now, that clears up a lot for me because one of my my questions here in my notes was how you guys defined physical limitation or how that construct was, you know, subjectively uh, not measured but gathered. Was it – go ahead. We we talk so much about the actual definition of injury in in regards to the framework of powerlifting – I actually really liked this definition in this paper because it was to me more specific than I've typically seen. But when you ask for like a physical limitation, as opposed to asking somebody if they have a previous injury, I mean, that previous injury could be something that they perceive to be something like very, not really time loss, like a small hamstring strain. And how, how you classify that and that physical limitation is important because that's that's perception based as well a little bit and can slide that scale. Is that kind of what you were alluding to a bit there, Quinn? Well, yeah, uh, injury was the main outcome measure, but one of the risk factors, like the main one that Andrew was saying, was a having a present, a current physical limitation. And I was just wondering how that was worded on the questionnaire 
was it a dichotomous yes or no, or, or did they describe it? Yeah, so essentially, and you both of you bring up a really good point here, is that with a 400-plus person internet-based international study, what you lose in that granularity, you gain in breadth, right? If this was all conducted at clinical athlete headquarters, you could screen the people and ask them really, really invasive, specific questions. We couldn't. So again, it's a breadth versus depth issue, which is a important to note here, is that we assumed we're going to get some weird answers that are going to wash out because we have a lot of people. It's just kind of the nature of conducting a study of this size that um, the exact question we asked on the screening form was, at this moment, are you able to train the way you want to without modifications or pain related to health or injury? Got it. Yeah, that's all I wanted to know. I was just I was just curious how that was being uh, defined there. So essentially, they can't train exactly the way that they want to train. And then, yeah, no, that makes sense. And I actually really like that because we start talking about the the main task, right? If if it's different than that, then they have to make a modification, and that could be that limitation. I, I like I like that framework anyway. That's just me. Just to chime in too, as someone who's involved as a subject, I also like how you how you guys define injury, and then also, um, or sorry, how you define injury, and the fact that I wouldn't necessarily or I wasn't excluded because I've got a, a lingering sort of hamstring issue that. It's not acute. It's been around for a number of years, and I can usually train just fine. But there are still times where it might piss, it might get pissed off more than other times. But just like your example, Andrew, with your knee, same sort of thing with my hamstring. You know, I find that lifting or deadlifting over a certain amount or certain lifts piss it off more than others. But I can make modifications and still train usually as hard and as frequently as I want to. So that was it was an enjoyable, I guess, aspect uh, for me at least, and allowed me to take part. Yeah, it's something that certainly that, that influenced that was my, I am, you know, 10 years of team sports, pretty much, you know, field sports. And at a high enough level, none of those people are ever healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so some things hurt sometimes, but there's a difference, as they say, between hurt and injured. And this is kind of the, essentially, a, a you got to get at it somehow. And this is one way to do that. Um Am I on the screen? Can you guys, if people are video, can you screen share one of those uh, uh, images I shared over? Uh, yeah. Jared, do you remember if you um, clicked you, that you had a physical limitation? Did you count the hamstring as that? Because it, it did affect training as sometimes? Like, I almost certainly would have just with that question. I couldn't have answered it otherwise. Just I can because... break the confidentiality here and look it up if you want to. Yeah, go for it, please. If you have the data point. Yeah. I do, yes. Awesome. Andrew, which figure do you want pulled up? Uh, this would be um, figure Look. two. Do you have it? The orange and green one? Okay. I think, yeah, let's see. The second histogram. So there's the histogram of sex and initial scale of self-reported total. You know, it is the uh, figure two at the bottom of that email, the very last uh, figure in the email. Oh, I was looking at the actual blog. The, okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the KM estimate of physical limitations at baseline. Is that the one? Yeah, the orange green one. Okay. And yes, you, you, you indicated you, you, you were, had that limitation. So yes, you were correct. Perfect. And the way that you guys, just, again, defined it, allowed me to continue to take part and not have to be 
taken out or removed just because over the course of that year, there were some instances where my hamstring was flaring up some and it just necessitated a change in, in training, but then training rolled on. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really the rolling on part is kind of, if you're able to keep training, you're that's the thing really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so essentially we looked at this, this was, you know, at the beginning of the study like this, you want to do some quick exploratory data analysis, some really basic kind of looking at the information before you spend, you know, 40 hours making complex models and all that. And one of the things that jumped out in a way I thought was actually a mistake was how big of a difference there was between injury rates for um, essentially no limitations and limitations. Ah, perfect. Yes, exactly. And so what we can look at here, and again, very strong caveat right above the graph, is that this is unadjusted. There is literally no adjustments made to this in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Just throwing that out there. Um, and this is called a Kaplan-Meier uh, plot. And what it is, essentially, it estimates, and survival is the term for that. People, These people are still alive, just FYI, but <laughs> um, that's, that's how it's... And so what it looks at is over time, from 0 to 365, um, what percentage of the population has survived or essentially not had a, an event at this point. So the no limitation group in green is the people who are able to train the way they want to. The orange group um, is people who cannot train the, the way they want to. Um, you can see by the end of the study, um, only about you know 12% of the limitations people remained where about 60% of the no limitations people um, remained. That's pretty significant. This is both statistically and visually significant um, and is, I think, in and of itself, very useful information. Um, yes. you know, as, as physical therapists, you, you know more than I about the need to completely rehab before trying to set a new world record or, or, or something like that. But, you know, there, this is this is kind of, to me, the, the tentpole in which the rest of the analysis is kind of built, built off. Yeah, and to orient people, and so that I have my understanding right too, Andrew, if you're, we're starting at 100% survival. So if we, if we could just, if we could say just for the purposes of this figure that an injury is an, uh, analogous with a death. Yes, okay. an event. Yeah, or yeah. event. Yeah, there you go. Um, in case, you know, nobody likes the morbid theme here. So every time, and these are, these are comparing groups with no limitation or, uh, no limitations in green. Those who are starting that year process with a limitation in their training here in this pinkish orange category. So they, they all started here at hundred percent survival rate because everybody was starting the study. And then every time that you had an injury, that's one less, that's an event. It's one less person in this population. Correct. Okay. Yes. And where it drops down or where essentially where events occur. And you can see, and to your point, those who started with some type of training limitation, that population, that survival population starts to shrink down at a faster rate and at an absolute number here at the bottom. There's less of them by the end, and there's a steeper drop here as well in the process. Is that, Correct. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's, no, so it, it makes sense. Did you? I can't remember, and I don't. I think the answer is no. Were there differences in male and female? Um, 
And I want to say, women were hurt less frequently, I believe. Yeah, but only by a small amount. A small. Amount. Yeah. So if you, go, if you, yeah. So, so that the yeah. So what we th- so women were hurt at a injury rate slightly less than that of men, but again unadjusted. Very again, very very caveat uh, unadjusted. Uh, it was not a significantly a significant difference, but it was there. Um, and it was not certainly up to the level of the uh, cross-sectional study we looked at where it was enormous up-in-your-face differences. So what I was alluding to more, cool. and I'm in, I'm in part two now, the differences in men and women in regards to those who had limitations. I thought it was in here. Ah. Oh, there it is. Yep. Uh, there wasn't really a, a sex difference here either doesn't look like right. that. Yeah. Okay. I did have a question about this, about sure. this uh, table here in particular. So am I, am I still sharing my screen? You are. Yes. Oh, okay. Good. And I'm just going to orient myself to this table. So we've got those who identified with a limitation right from the jump. Correct. On, on this the, is a, again, it's a time invariant. This, yeah. this is a never changes. Right. Okay. So of the 67 men who started the study, and who started the study with a limitation, 38, 38 of them got hurt. And, Correct. And you can see over then here, of the 185 men who reported no limitations at the start of the study, only 53 of them got hurt. Correct. My question about this particular graph is, when you do the math here, it looks like the denominator is the total number who started the study, but, but that's not accounting for the attrition rate. Yeah. So both parts of what you said are correct. If that makes sense. So this is, so the, if somebody drops out of the study, just they do three months and then just stop responding to my emails. Right. Yeah. They are the time they spend in the study still counts. That is still time under observation. And so what you want to have is a study, ideally with no dropouts. That isn't how it works. These things happen. But because no event was observed under the time they were under observation, that is still considered they didn't get hurt. It's important to note then you, you go back and look at the differences, if any, between the people who remained at healthy and f- finished the study we have one with, with us and the people who got hurt and had an event and the people that dropped out. What you would like to see is that, you know, it's not the people who dropped out are non-differential, right? It's not all of a sudden every single woman in the study dropped out or every single man in the study dropped out, things like that. And so this study had a relatively high dropout rate because we weren't paying people and it's email based. And that's just going to that's kind of just way it happens that way. Um, But you are correct in the sense that. This does not account for people who dropped out of the study, but the people who dropped out of the study didn't get hurt while they were in the study. I got you. The only did you guys track? I'm assuming you did. Like when they dropped out. I mean, for example, this the denominator here, 185. That's a pretty big number, and you know, it, 90 of those people could have dropped out in the first month when they would yes. have potentially gotten hurt in any of the one 11 months to follow. Do you, did you guys keep track of when people dropped out at what month of the year? 
Yeah, so unsurprisingly, the biggest dropout was between surveys one and two when enthusiasm (laughs) stopped. Um, But what you just said about if they dropped out, they could have gotten hurt. Well, yeah, but they're not under observation anymore, so we can't make any assumptions about their behavior. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. No, no, no. 100%. That's just just an inherent limitation of of what, you know. Yeah, for sure. But unsurprisingly, people got all psyched up about it. We had like 600 people respond to the initial screening email, and then it just kind of – and then you lose 100 when the survey gets sent out, and then you lose 50 the first week. Oh, yeah. No, 50 the first month. Well, and you guys are – you are transparent about your – about your loss to follow-up rate. I mean, here's the numbers here in the yeah. first part of the blog. It's a lot. But again... It's a start, it, though. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's a lot. Most of these studies you see are done at, like, hospitals or clinics where there is incentive to come back, not just me sending you an email once every four weeks. Right. And then, like Greg said, in one of these, in part one or, or part two, the it's possible that when somebody got hurt, they were discouraged and just, I don't want to fill out your stupid survey anymore. They're all they're there. You know, there's stuff going on, you know, behind the scenes, but Greg mentioned in, in one of these at the end that the, the, the populations weren't much different at baseline and, and the, yeah. yeah. And the loss to follow up even were more similar or as similar to the, healthy to the people who ended up not getting hurt correct that was right that was that was nice to see that to be totally honest with you yeah i was afraid it was going to be what you said where somebody you know popped their hip and said screw it i don't want to deal with your email because i know if i got seriously injured the last thing i would want to do is answer a bunch of annoying questions about how i got hurt and can't lift weights anymore so my fear was that that would what was going to happen, but and again we don't actually know. It could have happened. I'm sure it happened at least once or tw- a few times, but yeah. we don't have that information. But in general, the loss to follow up group was more similar to the uninjured group than to the injured group. So if anything, you would have if that if let's say that at face value is true at any if anything you would have overestimated injury proportion versus underestimate uh, i'm not even sure i want to give you a really good answer there i think that we just don't know right right we just don't know any other uh figures now that i got these the two pieces up here any other figures you want me to put on the screen this is part one uh, here that i have in front yeah i think that you know we did a um uh, That pie chart there, we can see, is from the cross-sectional study. We actually went into a little more detail in part two about the location of the injuries. Mm, mm -hmm. This is something I think you guys would be, as physical therapists, would probably be very interested in if you – there we go, right there. We can see where the injuries occur. Um, And, you know, it's – because the sample size is pretty small, especially for the women, there's only one or two in a a thing. But it's interesting to see where these injuries occur. Um, you know, unsurprisingly, there are more pec injuries in men than women due to guys making terrible decisions benching. That's mm-hmm. the least shocking in the world. Yeah. And I mean, one of our, our primary hypotheses was essentially men make worse decisions than women in training. I mean, literally, about, yeah. about that combined with the lower absolute load, there's less room for error. But in generally, men do dumber, younger men do dumber things than 
older men and all women. So, <laughs> all women. so that is like there. The and you can see that, you know, there's, Look at the elbow here too. No yeah, yeah. elbow impact. Yeah. So I, I honestly don't even know what elbow injury, I guess that maybe low bar or something weird benching, but there is certainly a higher preponderance of upper body injuries in men. Again, worst mobility and the worst, you know, shoulders rolled forward, benching too often, whatever you want. But that's, I'm sure, unsurprising to you guys. I see the elbow anecdotally, see elbow pain with just low bar positioning with the guys. Yeah, it back. Yeah. I mean, it's the guys who have to go collar to collar. Mm-hmm. And then they got they don't they don't have the shoulders to to move their hands in. It comes from somewhere else. Like they just torque their elbow a little bit. I'm right here. Get get sensitive. Yeah, <laughs> you're right like here. you're like outside the collars to start. Yeah, I hold the outside of the plate. You gotta find a new uh, federation or something. <laughs> just a longer bar. Um, True. Could that could that also be? I, I know you've got other muscle uh, labeled at the bottom, but could that that also be bicep injury? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I, I think it we depends on how they they classify it, correct? For sure. Yeah. I mean, if you, yeah, if you, if you, you know, if you hurt your tricep down by your elbow, you know, yeah, my elbow hurts. Yeah, it's a little above. <laughs> right. But um, I, yeah, we could have listed every single muscle, but we decided to kind of leave it here. <laughs> no, yeah. That's perfectly fine. Any other but, uh, figures on this? Andrew? No, that's that's all the figures uh, pretty much to go over. You can see that the the you know in general, I think it's interesting. You can see kind of, and this is what I think one of the most interesting. If you can actually scroll up to the first table one, yeah, there we go. Perfect. Oh. You can kind of see that you know our population is not the the kind of you know it, it's a regular people, which I think is important to note. Um, you know, it's very easy to see people on social media and you think that every person in the world is as strong as somebody on, you know, on team USA or whatever, lifting at worlds or, you know, saying everyone, but most people just do it for fun or like to lift or do local meets or things like that. And so I think that this study is interesting in that it, you know, a lot of the people doing it are not very strong, but they are, they're powerlifters. They they train to get better at this, and it's important to note that, you know, again, it's not the vast majority of people who lift weights and train in this are not people you see on Instagram squatting 800 pounds. And so, um, of the population, you can see that um, both this and in the first uh, article, see that our population is uh, mostly male, uh, but you know, we have a decent amount of women as well. Um, it, it tends to skew a little older than I uh, than probably because I think Greg's audience is probably maybe a little older. Um, and we kind of asked information generally about their powerlifting experience, their weight training experience. You know, I had a hypothesis about the, the sport athletic history. Um, but we, you know, there was a lot of other kind of demographic information, which is useful to just characterize who the powerlifting community is as well. Yeah. So my next question was, and I'll, I'll bring it back to the screen in case people, but these are the two, these are the two pieces. So now you got no excuses to find them and read them. And they're not that long either. I was prepared when I sat down, I was like, Oh, this is on stronger by science. I'm going to, this is going to be a 45 minute read. The next one will be a blockout. Yeah. I was disappointed. So that's why I wanted to ask you, (laughs) I'm going to stop sharing my screen is where do you, where are you guys going next with, with the data and with these, uh, with the multi-series pieces? 
So uh, you're still saying anything about that. I, I, I know. I know. Okay. I'm trying um, to figure out how not to. Here so the next article is going to be the big injury piece with the essentially modifying and understanding the statistical process behind the time part of it. So when we, if you, when you think back to injury rates, there's always a time component, right? Any rate is a thing per time. And when we look at injury rates in sport, like field sports, it's often injuries per hour or things like that. Um, powerlifting time is a weird metric. I have had two hour training sessions where I did nothing. And I've had 45 minute training sessions where I moved 500,000 pounds. You know, so there's a understanding the injury per what is, I think, a very interesting part of this because we're able to say, um, and again, it can depend by we have the initial thing was by day because that's a, a very easily understood, well recorded way of looking at time. But understanding that, you know, does it really matter how many days you powerlift? It really matters how many sets or how many reps and at what intensity you do it at, right? Um, you know, I have hypotheses about different kinds of injuries. You know, like you know, you, you don't see too many super mega acute injuries in the training hall for powerlifting, right? For regular people, certainly. I mean, I've been in gyms in a pretty long time. I've never seen someone break their leg in a gym. But you see a lot of muscles here and there and things like that. And understanding, is that a consequence of maybe injury per set, per squat? You know, injury per repetition over 90%. You know, there are ways to modify that per what that I think are useful and interesting. Is that going to come out of the same data set? Well, Obviously, these next this series in particular will. Do you guys have plans to do more of these? Um, not as of now. This was a fair amount of work for me. Yeah. Um, and we have yet to do enough analysis to cl- warrant collecting more data. Um, but certainly, I think that there are, you know, like with most studies, there are spinoffs that could be conducted. Um, but I would prefer to do a really good job analyzing this one first before I asked a bunch of people for more information. Um, but, you know, the one of the other goals of this project is to kind of get it a one of my, I'm not sure if this is even possible, but to kind of get a quantitative estimate of MRV based on who you are ahead of time, right? So the way to find that out usually is, you know, probably five sets of 10 at 90% is probably too much. We know that, but, you know, there are, if you're a 205 pound man who's, you know, total is 1400 pounds, what's your MRV? It's a little personal in some senses, but I'd like to attempt to literally model that on a per person basis with, you know, your demographic variables and get an understanding of here's probably what you shouldn't exceed for injury risk based on what we know. Can't, I'm not sure if that's going to work, but that's one thing that I will be working on over the next couple of months as part of this. Well, I, I don't know. I'll be watching with uh, with bated breath on that one because that seems like a Same. big undertaking. There's a lot of factors that go into that. Yeah, for sure. And like we said, there it's you know it, it, how how broad it is. You know, you understanding that you're not going to be able to say, well, oh, you did one extra rep. That's too much. But essentially, being able to quantitatively say this is probably too much for you. Or even better, saying increasing this amount of, of weight or volume is probably too much for you. Because we have the training information on a monthly basis for all these people. And we're going to look at essentially in the month, in the two months preceding an injury, how did their training change from the two months prior to that? 
is obviously, you know, if, you know, if a marathoner runs five extra miles in a week, it's not a big deal. If I ran five extra miles in a week, I would die. So understanding, you know, how you've adapted yourself to percent, essentially not just absolutely, but can you percentage change based how much up in terms of volume and load based on your skill level and male, female size, all that stuff. So you're talking more like a powerlifting specific AC ratio. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to oversell because I haven't done it yet, but it's it's in progress, certainly. Well, we're just spitballing. So I mean yeah. we still you you have this huge data set that you gotta go through, and I'm sure there's quite a few things that you wanna kinda to 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 play with with that. But I mean, especially when you start talking about analyzing previous training leading up to an injury and, and training leading up to especially a non event, um, and, and comparing those two groups, it, it seems like that's kind of the direction that it would be going in, which is something we've talked about with a, a weakness with AC ratio in regards to applications in a barbell sport, not necessarily being the most accurate when we're looking at Australian rules football. Um, sure. And again, AC ratio has its limitations and so does any single metric, but it is definitely pretty, pretty interesting stuff, especially with the data set that you have. Yeah, no, I think I, you know, the unfortunate part is that we don't have repetitions because you can't really. Add, that doesn't work in a questionnaire format very well. Um, you know, as you can imagine, yeah, at some point you'd have people inputting essentially their entire training program to a standardized questionnaire, and that's always the hard part. Is if you standardize something, it's you're going to miss some nuance. But again, we hope to kind of smooth that out by the number of people we have. Um, well, I, mean, I think intellectually that and from an application perspective, you know, trying to get that quantitative estimate of kind of sanity or boundaries of, of volume and load increases and decreases, both in terms of performance, we have improvement data as well, which was kind of a consequence of the injury information. So we have all these people and how much they've lifted and have gotten better or worse. And so you can kind of twin those together and say, who got better and why? Do we, why do we think they got better? Who got hurt and why? And is there an overlap there? Is there any concern with dipping into the data so many times that you end up just picking up noise? That's one of the reasons why I asked about the, uh, any future work that you're going to do is obviously the, the attrition rate, now that you know it's going to be that high, which you guys probably already did, it's, you know, it's an online email-based thing here, but just more bigger numbers to be able to, to account for that. And then you can start, I guess, subgrouping a little bit more with a little bit more certainty because some of those injury rates, like body part wise, we could say, Oh, you know, guys hurt their pecs more than women, but there were only four guys that hurt their pecs. So in a smaller sample, you could just say, that's just, that's just noise. If you had doubled the sample size and it could have been the same number of injuries or, or something like that. So I guess my question to you is, is there, is there any concern with, how you're sub if you subgroup too much and you pick up just some noise versus yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. Yes. So yes, that's a major concern of any kind of study like this. Um, what you want to avoid doing is trying is again, you know, making 500 different comparisons and finding one that ended up looking good on the numbers. And so part of this is, is just not subgrouping, right? So there's a way to, deal with things in a continuous sense as opposed to a binning sense, right? So 
really the only variable that makes sense to bin people in is male female there's a like a true biological difference there and that's the case and that can be adjusted for as well but you know we're not going to be this isn't just a series of proportion tests faceted by the number of you know breaking out into pods essentially it's not going to be that there's um you know there's more you know complex and statistically rigorous uh, modeling that will be going on no that makes sense that, differentiating between kind of keeping them uh figuring out what you want to bin and keeping the sample kind of as a whole makes a lot of sense to me. Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, male-female is just an indicator variable in a model, right? It's a one or a zero. Yeah. Um, it's not – we don't cut the sample in half and only look at men or only look at women. You know, it's, 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 it's that and injury status are pretty much the only really, you know, dichotomous variables that are in the study. You know, some of this demographic information is interesting, but we don't actually think – again – we knew that we only had one chance to ask these questions, so we just start asked a bunch. We didn't necessarily think that whether you played sports in high school was going to make a difference, but we wanted to ask. You know, so there's some stuff that is truly applicable. You know, we knew sets and reps and intensity and how many frequency. All these things would, for certain, be valuable from an injury and improvement status. And then we kind of filled in the blanks around the edges about information that would be useful. And one of the reasons that epidemiology is so important, you said this earlier, because I think people get, they don't really look at this stuff because it doesn't tell them what to do. You know what I mean? It's it's just, we're looking at populations. We're trying to understand the populations that we work with first so that, so that we can be better informed. And you mentioned earlier that these, this type of data and these types of studies help us ask questions that lead to research down the line, whether that's you doing the research or somebody's reading your data and, and they've got some ideas on how to carry it through. So it's, it's, it's this stuff is just really, really important. Um, For sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, there's, again, we didn't intervene. This is purely observational. Right. So we get a look into these people's training lives. And while we have certain hypotheses about what we expected to happen and how we're going to analyze the data, um, once we are done with this, we're going to, you know, we can't make the, we're going to try and get releases from everybody to see if we can get published the data. As we said, we wouldn't because it's, it is their day, their information. Um, but, um, you know, in the sense of actionable items, you know, what, okay, I read your study, got this, now what? I think, you know, some of that is, is you know, is, is it, you know, if, if my, pie in the sky MRV situation works out or the AC stuff we talked about works out. That's a, Oh, let's plug in my numbers. See what I shouldn't do. Um, you know, from a, you know, from a long-term coaching and, and health planning perspective, you know, I got hurt as you guys know, I, you know, I separated my shoulder, but you know, eh, I'll skip rehab this week and just keep pushing it. No. So, I mean, again, what you take out of it, you know, this, this isn't a study to read if you're trying to figure out how to take your deadlift from 700 to 800. That's really not what this is about. So the action items are going to be dependent on both, you know, kind of who you are and where you fit in this study. Because, you know, if, if you're a 35-year-old woman who is extremely strongly strong versus a 65-year-old man who's just a beginner, what you might take from this is probably different. So that's important to note as well. And with the physical limitation factor, at at minimum, you can say, well, I I currently have this thing 
where I, I can't train exactly the way that I would want to train if I was 100% healthy, maybe I should take a, maybe I should reframe my approach and be a little bit more cautious, make better decisions. You know, this, it's not a black and white recommendation, but it's, it, it gets you thinking and it maybe at least gives you a little bit of pause. Like, oh, I should maybe take this seriously because it's a, it's a factor in, in all of this. Yeah. Without a doubt. Well, and for some of the stuff, especially with this study in particular, as coaches, some some people are going to look at this and it just kind of confirms some intuition. We see low back low back injuries pretty frequently. We see shoulder injuries frequently. Hip and knee happen quite a bit. What's the commonality of this? And we're not going to extrapolate it out, right? And, and try to say, well, we see this, so this is going to give us information to fix it. But we can at least look at it and go, yeah, this happens pretty frequently. And if you look at the data, this is something that's pretty common. So you can have that conversation with an athlete and kind of back them off a little bit from the catastrophizing and all the other craziness they like to go through. I'm going to lose training time. Well, no, look, these people, they had some of these things going on and they still had some training going on. So you're, it's, it's going to be okay. It's pretty common. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great important information. That's a great point that, you know, if you – play sports with this, what this is essentially a sport long enough, you're probably going to get somewhere between a little bit hurt and a lot of it injured. Um, it's, you know, especially powerlifting where it's something you can do for 10 years or more, you know, or weightlifting or whatnot, you know, just the, you know, as I call them, the random event generator of injury, you're going to walk out weird one day and trip or, or, you know, the bar is going to slip out of your hand or something that you can't, isn't a, technique or programming thing but you know if you roll the dice enough times something's gonna happen you know, my only real gym injury is when i was cleaning up the gym and slipped carrying a barbell i've never really been hurt hurt other than that in the gym so you know there's there's those and then there's the idea of well my training was objectively stupid and it's funny greg actually went through the spreadsheet and said yep 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 <laughs> those are dumb scrolled over hurt 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 <laughs> That's actually one of the more humorous ones, potentially, of the the idiot test. Like, if you're doing CrossFit six days a week, you're squatting above 90% four days a week, you're also doing three days a week of running, you're not sleeping, don't do that. And, you know, you shouldn't need a year-long longitudinal study to tell you that, but, you know, it's, there are, you can visually, again, this is why coaches exist, is because we knew those things anyway, but it is good to get confirmation of the, of that as well. What else is coming down the pipeline for you? You mentioned one thing, but does this study get to count as your doctoral dissertation? Does it double as that? No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. This would, this would, no, absolutely. So the next big article is going to be focused on kind of the statistical modeling of the injury component. Um, the one after that is going to be based on the improvement because ultimately people probably lift weights to get better at it, especially the powerlifting types. So we want to look at understanding how training impacts improvement and how lifestyle factors impact improvement, things like that. And then the fifth article, which will likely be the final kind of wrap up and kind of, like you said, these so what's, the takeaways, the action items, if you will. Um, and then um, no more research on this specific topic is currently planned as I'm trying to wrap up my actual PhD. Um, and that is enough of my time at the moment. Uh, but uh you know, certainly, you know, 
working with Greg in this long and, uh, you know, there's going to be likely opportunities to get involved with other data sets and other, you know, study questions and things like that to look at it. Um, and uh, I do some kind of strength conditioning or might be doing in the future with uh, uh, basketball work regarding kind of player tracking data stuff. So there's some, um, cool. some studies there on my end. But in general, I want to do a really good job of analyzing this information before I add another study onto my already study-filled life. What is your dissertation on? Yeah. Sorry, Quinn. No, that's, what, that's um, what I wanted to ask. So it is nothing to do with this. It is a exposure. Essentially, it's a risk assessment for um, benzene-induced uh, AML uh, due to um, occupational exposure to gasoline. So exposure oh. modeling, probabilistic modeling, things like that. I was waiting for something lacrosse, like correlating the use of the word bro and performance. Probably <laughs> <I'm> pretty good. <laughs> yeah, so literally my, my dissertation has literally nothing to do with this. Yeah. Um, but I seem to actually have I spend more time in my life working in training conditioning than I have working on my dissertation. So <laughs> can't well, quit it. This can count as your social media defense on, on the on the study trying to answer my uh, my stupid questions and my ineptitude no, with no, statistics. You didn't ask any stupid questions. You know, those, are, those are good <laughs> questions that I, I should be forced to answer and answer well. So those are good. When when well, is, uh, when do you think you'll be done? <laughs> that's the that's the question, yeah. isn't it? Uh, <laughs> a year. All right. That's not bad. But where can people connect with you? Uh, I am on Twitter is um, at A-N-P-A-T-T-7. Um, I do a lot of basketball statistics work there. You'll probably see that there. Um, I do email me at that same ANPT7 at Gmail. Um, or if you leave a comment in either of the articles, I will look for it there as well. Um, cool. Feel free to get in touch with any questions. And we actually solicit questions from the audience as a large to answer in our articles. So if you have a burning question or a good idea for how to use the data, let us know. We'll get into it. Awesome. Yeah. If we get, uh, when the show comes out, if we get questions from the listeners, we'll, we'll shoot them to you too. Um, and then, and, and then for, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to jump the gun. And when you're done with this whole series, you're probably going to go on Greg's, but can you come back on ours too? Yeah, for sure. Chat about the I'd love to come back in and talk about the actual results as opposed to the half-assed results. <laughs> oh no, it's not half-assed. It's the start, man. This is science. <laughs> this is what it's all about. This is, this is the best I'm really excited about this conversation because it, it should show people the process. Yeah. People yeah. don't appreciate the process of science. This yeah, we takes are, time. We're doing it. We're, that is the one part I like about this. Instead of putting out one 75,000-word article, <laughs> we are putting out kind of piecemeal things and literally doing it live, essentially. Um, <laughs> and ultimately, it will probably turn this into either uh, probably a manuscript at some point once I get my act together. But I was, was going to ask that, too, everything. but I didn't want... I didn't want to bring it up unless you were going to say something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I got to obviously do the analysis first. But once we've written four, five articles on it, we just got to smash it together into a there you go, condense it a little bit, formalize it, and send it off somewhere. So I'm sure that'll be done at some point in 2025. <laughs> <laughs> after you're, right after you're done with your doctorate in 2025, sure. as you said, a year from now. Uh, no, I think it would be really, really cool to get you back on and tie it all together. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. And also, just just in case people didn't know, we rewind to when we were talking about AC ratios. That's acute to chronic ratio. John, shame on you for using acronyms that 
some people might not know what the hell you're talking about. That's not science. It's 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 common feedback that I, I keep getting, so I'll have to clean that up. <laughs> to find your terms, that's, that's sir. elitist. Oh, that's like if you don't know, then you're just not part of our crew. Catch up. I mean, I guess uh, it, it's fine. It's my wall. Uh, well, Andrew, thanks so much for being on, man. This was a really yeah. interesting. It was it was really cool to talk to you about this. I appreciate it. And if you guys, and if you three have any questions, feel free to email me as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll love to answer them. If we have any of your hypotheses for the rest of the study, um, let us know. And obviously, uh, appreciate uh, Jared for participating in the study. Thank you very much. Without you guys, I wouldn't have anything to write about. So thank you. Happy to do it. I was actually excited to get those emails. Like, oh yeah, I'm still a part of this thing. They didn't kick me out yet. It's interesting because my, my fiance uh, bailed on three months. She bailed. On, so. <laughs> she, she dropped out? She dropped out. That's yeah. hilarious. Very. Yeah. We had to talk about that. <laughs> That's amazing. Jared, you made it all the way through. No, no uh, injuries. Just no, your I feel kind of proud. Just yeah, you're one of the unicorns. You're the the pre-existing oh, issue. Made it all the way through. Answered all the questions. Yeah. That's that's going on the resume now. You should. I'll write you a letter. Beautiful. It doesn't surprise me at all though, because Jared's Canadian, and they just they're they're men of their word, and they're nice. <laughs> You, you know, you run from polar bears often enough. You just figure out how to survive and how polar to make stuff bears. work. Wow. Yeah. So it's just yeah. hand them like a jar of maple syrup. And then hey, some of run. them on the West Coast. I'm, okay. I'm not there. Speaking oh, of cool. speaking of you East Coasters, I'm, I know it's late out there. So, Andrew, thanks again for having uh, for being on. And Jared yeah, and John for joining us. Yeah, it was fun. And we will talk to you guys next time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Quinn.